Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's Aaron, I'm here with Jeff, and we also have two special guests. We have Kinzer Hewitt and Donald Hofer. So these guys just recently completed the Trans-North Georgia bikepacking route, so we wanted to talk to them a little bit about their experience there. So before we get started talking about that, maybe uh, have you guys introduce yourselves, talk about what you do, your your uh, history in cycling, and uh, you know maybe how you got into bikepacking. So we'll start with uh, Donald. Uh, yeah, so my name's Donald, and um, I guess uh, I was a mechanic for years uh, here in Atlanta, worked on bikes and rode a bunch. I've raced down at the velodrome for a bit, done mountain bike races off and on, but never really got into cross country or anything, and um, started, I don't know how, I started paying attention to the bike camping, bike packing scene a couple of years back, and um, I think I started when Tavel, who runs Loose Nut Cycles here in Atlanta, led a campaign down to go do the hurricane in Florida. Uh, I missed the first outing for that, so the second year I came back and, and rode it, and that kind of got me hooked. And um, and then I found out about this this route in Georgia, uh, which is considerably less flat than the Florida <laughs> route, and uh, decided to set my sights on that. So, uh, yeah, that's me. Kinzer Hewitt. I am a mechanic over at Loose Nut Cycles in Grand Park, Atlanta, Georgia. I started kind of my cycling, if you want to call it a career, with a lot of road racing and crit racing when my dad kind of got me into it. Um, But since then, I've kind of shifted more towards uh, having fun on bikes and, you know, racing mountain bikes and cyclocross and all sorts of fun stuff you know stuff where you can get air and you know get hurt so (laughs) that's what i really enjoyed but yeah that's my story and the beer too there's a lot more beer and cyclocross and mountain biking than road right that's always a good part of it (laughs) cool so moving on uh so trans north georgia for people who aren't familiar what it is what is it exactly I couldn't give you the whole history of the route, but um, this is a, a route that starts in northeast Georgia at the South Carolina border and goes for about 320 miles um, all the way to the Alabama border on the west side of the state. And it takes a very non-direct route to get from one state to the next um, and a very vertical route. So there's a lot of climbing on this route and uh, it goes through a lot of mountain chains and hits uh, a lot of forest roads and a lot of single track, um, a surprising amount of single track and double track and a surprisingly small amount of pavement over the course of it, which is sort of the um, pavement, sort of the, the unspoken secret of bikepacking routes of how much there actually is. <laughs> so. so you said there is a, definitely a lot of climbing. Do you know what the total elevation is for the route? The official count is something like 56,000 feet. So a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And this is, so the route you can, obviously you can go, you can find the route and follow it anytime you want, but there is a race each year, right? That uh, is actually like a mass start race. So have you guys done that before? I did last, uh, last August. It's usually at the end of August, beginning of September. And I went down there and and started with everybody and and tried to do the race. And uh, we hit some bad storms in August. And so I had to, I had to drop out about two thirds of the way through. And, uh, I told myself that I would never, never, ever race something like this because it does not seem fun to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. (laughs) So Donald, you said that you attempted the start or it, it actually sounds like we were talking earlier. It sounds like you made it pretty far that first time that you did it with the mass start so how many times have you attempted the route total 
Uh, total be three. Kinzer and I tried it uh, at the end of April last year, and um, we had to bail because of some poor equipment choices and some lack of preparedness. And then I did it again in August, and uh, it didn't make it that time either. So this this time around, we finally committed to stay out there until we made it to Alabama. <laughs> nice. So, Kinzer, what were those poor equipment choices? Well, that's actually where I got my nickname from. Um, I am known in the shop as Three Stoves Kinzer. Um, <laughs> I decided to make some poor equipment choices. Um, I had three stoves with me because I thought, you know, maybe I would have some coffee and some toasted bagels and maybe some eggs in the morning. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking, but poor choice is definitely in the packing area and as well as kind of the bicycle position. Um, I had my saddle and my stem kind of set up still in the cross country mountain bike racing position, which does not translate over to, uh, to bike packing very well. Didn't you uh, take a pair of jeans or something with you too? <laughs> I was trying to keep up with the enduro bros, and I had my uh, I had my flannel and actually a, a pretty nice heavy pair of jeans with me. Yep. <laughs> so for anyone listening at home, you know, go ahead and cross those items off your list <laughs> as things you don't need to take with you on a on a bike packing trip. So. You know, with the past, I hate to use the word failed, but failed attempts of the Trans-North Georgia, you guys recently set out and completed it. So um, when uh, did you guys go about doing that? So after Donald's second attempt, he kind of came back looking a little angry and really, really wanted to do it. And, you know, Donald kind of definitely led me into doing doing this. And so I kind of felt like, Given him his third attempt and my second attempt, you know, giving him somebody to ride with was going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we knew we weren't going to race it or anything like that. So we set out to do a decent pace and Donald kind of pulled me into it. And we decided, you know, when was it? Probably eight or nine months ago, basically right when he got back from the race last year, we decided, you know, we were going to go for another attempt. To answer your question, the beginning of May. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Donald. <laughs> so, so how long did it take you guys? We did the route over four days. I think our total elapsed time was something like three days and 19 hours. We were going to, uh, where the route starts is actually on a bridge on the South Carolina border in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there's no spot to camp there. There's no nothing there. Um, and the year before we stopped there and there's, there's a little pullout, um, because some people put in on the river there. Um, and we ended up camping on the side of the road and it was miserable. I think it even rained on us <laughs> and, um, we didn't really want to do that again. And so in one of our planning meetings, Kinzer was like, well, why don't we just get there and ride from the start the, the first night? And so we did, we did about 20 miles that night, which got us into the woods into a good camping spot. And, uh, that turned out to be a really good, decision because it gave us about a three hour head start on the next day. So we were able to make some good, good distance on the first official day of our riding. So what did you guys do for route finding? Uh, were you using like GPS and stuff or did you, did you guys get lost at all? Yeah. You, there's an official GPX file that the, um, the race organizer sends out to anybody who signs up for it. And I think you can even get it on their, on the trans North Georgia website. Um, you can get the last year's, uh, race file on there. And I put that on a, a Garmin Oregon is what I use. Although the e series are pretty common among bikepackers too. 
Um, and that worked. I had a, a base map loaded on there that kind of gave me some idea of what roads and trails were also around. So it wasn't just a, a breadcrumb trail like you get if you put it on a, an edge or something. Right. I learned that firsthand because <laughs> I have an edge. And if Donald was not there, I would have made it probably about 50 miles. <laughs> so how was the ride? I know you said... Um, you know, you've dealt with rain and stuff in the past. You guys had to deal with any uh, weather or anything, any bear attacks or, you know, snake fights or anything along the way? So our weather was actually really, really nice. We got drizzled on one day for maybe 10 minutes. So honestly, the weather was pretty amazing. It, I don't think it got over 85 degrees until we got to Alabama, which was horrible. Um, it was about 90 degrees when we finished. So we were feeling that, but... um as yeah, I mean, as far as as weather and everything goes, it was it was fantastic and spring mountain weather. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just it was really really nice. Which compared to when the race actually runs at the end of August, if anybody's ever lived, been in Georgia at the end of August, is miserable. It typically is over ninety degrees and one hundred and seventy percent humidity, which adds a whole another aspect to trying to get through this route because you're. you're physically destroyed just from the weather and you're at the end of the growing season so the trail is completely covered with with briars and, and poison ivy everywhere yeah that actually seems like a really kind of dick move to put on the <laughs> the official race in uh, at the end of august i mean it seems like it'd be much much more enjoyable in i don't say october or maybe late april early may yeah but it's a race it's supposed to be hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh about the gear that you guys use. So what what did each of you use for your your what's your bike setup? I've got a Salsa Fargo, but a tie Fargo that I set up a little strange on this one. I put a, a twenty seven five plus tire on the front and a twenty nine on the back, um, just to kind of soften my hands a little bit on the ride, give me some more float over things too. Um, and I carried a... Because you're riding rigid, right? Yeah, that bike's it's fully rigid. I've got a carbon fork on the front, so not running a Reba or anything like that. And I've got a... I do that so that I can carry more stuff, which is, you know, makes the bike heavier overall, but it keeps things off my back, which puts less fatigue, I, I hope. In theory, puts less fatigue on, on the rider in general. Um, but yeah, I've got the standard um, off-the-saddle big bag, a frame bag, a couple of things on the fork, and, and some... Uh, a handlebar bag as well as far as setups for me go um i switched a couple things around from my first attempt i was riding clipless on the first attempt and that tended to to not be very easy to do um i also had to carry kind of an extra pair of shoes like camp pair of shoes and it just didn't work out so this time i rode flat pedals lowered the seat a little bit but as far as the bike goes i've got a El Mariachi that I've got a Fox 32 front fork on and I was actually talking with Bobby Brown out at uh, Maxis and he handed me a pair of 27.5 2.8 icons that weren't out yet and so I built up myself a pair of uh, 27.5 Easton's and threw those in there and there was barely enough clearance but there was enough to to get it done but i mean pretty much the same setup as donald um as far as bags go you know seat bag frame bag top two bags and then a handlebar bag um i did do a jones bar which definitely helped out on the hand positioning problems that i had on the first attempt it gave me about four hand positions which was really nice how many stoves did you take this time i only <laughs> took one <laughs> nice <laughs> 
So, okay. How, do you guys know how much your, your bikes weighed when they're all fully loaded down? Yeah. Uh, to give you an idea, my bike, um, without anything on it is around maybe 23, 24 pounds and, uh, fully stocked, ready to go with three days worth of food and water, three liters of water, not three days of water, three days of food. <laughs> I want to say it was 55 pounds. So I had about 30, 30 pounds of gear with me. I would say mine was pretty much on that, on that level, probably around 52 to 55. And I did, I did weigh mine. So it actually was, it was about 53 and a half pounds. So did you guys need all that food? I mean, do people typically stop along the way? I mean, it seems like you guys are going 350 miles. You probably pass by a store at least once, right? Yeah. Trans North Georgia has a couple of, of remote sections, but for the most part, you can restock pretty regularly. I mean, if you carry enough food for a day, and maybe a little bit of emergency rations or something, you'll be fine. You can stop at restaurants and, and eat well. I was actually doing this um, as training for the Colorado Trail Race this uh, summer, and there's a section of that that's about 200 miles and 35,000 feet of climbing, which which compares almost identically, except that it's 8,000 feet higher in elevation, <laughs> to the first 200 miles of, of Trans North Georgia. So I figured if I can make it, that far in without having to stop and get food, then I'll, I'm probably covered for that backcountry section. So yeah, I was a little, I was not the typical use case, um, in this. So yeah. As far as for me, I did take like three freeze, not freeze dry, but like, uh, just regular, like nights worth of food. So I brought like, you know, some rice and beans, some dried rice and beans. And I had a thing of jambalaya some zatarans um, yeah um that actually it packs really well and it's a it packs really well to the amount of food that you actually get so every night when we set up camp and made a fire i had a big old dinner and it was it was awesome because i like to eat <laughs> is there anything that you guys took with you that maybe you know on second thought you didn't need or is there anything maybe on the other hand that you wished you had during the trip that's an excellent question that's actually a question i like to ask everybody i ride with when we finish a ride like this is is name one thing that you had that you didn't want and uh or never touched rather and then one thing that you wished you had the whole time and uh for me the thing i wished i had was a bigger cassette um i went (laughs) i've got a one by setup and i have a, a 30 tooth on the front and i had a 40 in the back and that was not enough gear for this ride with that much weight on my bike. Um, so the whole time I wished I had uh, just a, maybe a 42 and a 28 in the front or something like that. Just one extra click on my <laughs> on my drivetrain. Maybe that new Eagle group, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the 52. Would have liked my wallet for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Kinzer? So I guess, I mean, my setup was pretty darn good. I felt like the one thing that I wish I would have changed as far as like still bringing but changed the style was my water purification i had a steri pin which i used to use a lot for backpacking and it tends not to do very well with uh, bike packing the button is on the outside of the mechanism and so when it was in my handlebar bag and bouncing around with all the descending and everything it basically was pushing the button and so the 500 uses you get from these batteries <laughs> got used in the first day and so i went to go fill up my water bottles when we actually needed purification and it didn't work so you know i piggybacked off of donald quite a bit this trip <laughs> he did have a very sterile handlebar bag though <laughs> yeah i bet it's important 
So you guys said you rode the first bit of it at night. So what did you do for a light setup? And beyond that first night, did you guys ride at night at all? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to add to Kinzer's <laughs> list of things that he wishes he brought. <laughs> um, I've got a dynamo hub, so I've got a, a always on as long as I'm moving light um, so I can keep riding through the night pretty well. I also carry a, a battery headlight that goes on my helmet, um, a rear flasher for safety and for, to be law-abiding, and then just a camp flashlight as well. So I'm pretty well stocked in terms of lumen uh, Kinzer was pretty well stocked in terms of battery. <laughs> he had uh, he had about eight pounds worth of batteries for his light, which failed the first night uh, on the first descent. <laughs> so he ended up with my helmet light uh, the rest of the time. I would say I probably got about uh, maybe an hour worth of of light out of my light. Um, the basically the the mounting system on it pulled pulled the cable out of the bottom of the light and so about an hour in i was lightless so descending in the north georgia mountains behind donald who you know is a great rider when it's pitch black it's kind of interesting because you you follow their line but you can't see anything so <laughs> it's pretty interesting um but yeah i ended up taking his head headlamp and uh we were able to able to continue forth but yeah, speaking of the, the piggybacking off of Donald's <laughs> supply. <laughs> Sounds like you got a little confused about the rule. You know, I think I think they say you need three sources of light when you're, like, exploring a cave, right? <laughs> so I think you, you got stoves and lights confused, it sounds like. Yeah, I always think with my stomach. <laughs> so did you guys ride any more during the night, or was it uh, all daytime riding for the rest of the route? No, our, our typical day ended up being we'd, we'd get up, um, break camp, and be on the bikes by 7 in the morning, which this time of year is is light. Um, and then we'd ride through until um, it seemed to be about 11 was our average stopping time. So we'd do uh, three to four hours per day of, of night riding. Yeah, uh, it was it was usually about two and a half, three hours of, of legitimate no light from the sky, basically. You know, we were getting... It was actually kind of nice because we got a lot of time where it was kind of like just a little bit of light still left. Um, you would be on the front of a mountain and you wouldn't have any light and you'd get to the back of the mountain and it would be nice and sunset style. So it was it was interesting being being in that position. I'll say one more thing about Kinzer's light. I think maybe you guys have <laughs> talked about them before. It's one of those cheap eBay, Amazon lights um, with the exploding batteries. Um, luckily, he didn't use his batteries, so they didn't explode. But clearly, you should also check the wiring harnesses on those if you're going to go that route. Yes, you should. We've seen some sketchy things in opening those up, like paper and what appears to be paper clips. Um, so... Any any highlights? What was your favorite moment from the from the ride this year? We had some good wildlife showings. I've I've lived in Georgia my whole life, and so I've spent a lot of time up in the mountains. And um, prior to this trip, I'd never seen any bear in Georgia. I've seen a lot of bear in North Carolina, and, and actually, I had a real close encounter with a bear in Florida uh, recently. And, but we we spooked two two black bear along the trail. Uh, one the first night, and one the second day. Yep. Yeah, and uh, we even saw a bobcat. We chased a bobcat down uh, Duncan Ridge Road for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the bobcat was like 
he was just, I guess it was like breakfast time and he was just like in the middle of the trail and Donald came around a corner and he saw us and he started running, but he didn't run like the bears did. The bears just jumped down the mountain and, and just, you know, got out of sight really quick. Those dudes are fast. But the bobcat just kind of like stayed on the road for, I think it was like a hundred or 150 feet. And he was just cruising, man. Cause we were going downhill. And so we were probably going about 25, 28 miles an hour. And he was easily putting, you know, space in between us. So it was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. I kept yelling for Kinzer to close the gap and he just didn't do it. <laughs> Catch that wheel. <laughs> Trail highlights though. I'd, I've ridden because of the race I did back in August, I'd ridden all the way to Dalton that time. And for, after Dalton, you do the, the Snake Creek Gap time trial route for a little bit. And then there's another 40 or so miles after that to get to the Alabama border. And I'd never ridden that latter section. And uh, it's a lot of uh, valley and ridge riding. So you climb up a really, or you walk up, really, um, <laughs> a, a really steep climb. And then you get up onto the ridge. And unlike the Snake Creek ridges, which are very shardy and, and narrow, those last couple of ridges on the state are, um, they're actually rounded over really nicely. And so you're up in this kind of eerie spot where you're, you're on sort of a wide kind of flat section um, and just sort of, kind of cruising back and forth across the ridge. And it was it was really almost surreal, the riding that's up there. Unfortunately, it's a pain in the butt to get to, and there's no good way to make it like a, a, a circle route. So I don't know how you'd ever go ride that other than to ride Transform Georgia. So, <laughs> As far as trail light, uh, highlights for me, the first 50 miles or so of that, of that route, just absolutely gorgeous. Um, everything is covered with moss. Um, you're going up huge climbs. You're coming down huge descents. Um, you're flowing through beautiful, just almost like, you know, BC style stuff. I mean, obviously not that big of a elevation, but still super tall climbs and super tall, uh, tall descents. And I think just like the wildlife and just the green, the greenness of it was really the coolest thing. And then I had never done Stanley Gap before. And so to attempt some of that stuff on a fully loaded bike for the first time ever was actually pretty gratifying because I cleared a couple things. <laughs> well, we ride Stanley Gap on Trans North Georgia in the in the wrong direction. If you've ever ridden the Aska Road Trails, you'll know that there's a there's a right direction and a wrong direction. <laughs> and we rode the wrong direction uh, on this trail. So it's it's the greatest amount of hike a bike on <laughs> on the route um yeah. and it it doesn't ever end and you come out and you're a half mile down the road you left to get onto the trail <laughs> but it took you three hours to get there yeah. <laughs> that's miserable <laughs> so so speaking of misery what uh what about low points any any time during the ride where you're just ready to fling your bike into the woods and pick up a new hobby yeah yeah towards the end uh, on one of the climbs up to that surreal uh, ridge line on the route, uh, we're, we were, I don't know if we were on the bike or off the bike. We were probably pushing the bikes at this point. And it was a pretty heavily vegetated trail. And we're pushing up, and, and the, the peaks over there aren't terribly high. If you look at the elevation profile of, of this route, it's got a bunch of big humps towards the front half and the, the front two-thirds of the route. And so one of the lies, I like to say, of Trans-North Georgia is the hard stuff's over. So <laughs> by the time you get to Dalton, you're like, you look at the elevation profile, and you think, oh, it's just a couple of little blips, and it's mostly flat. It's fine. But yeah, so these, these peaks are only a couple hundred feet in elevation above the, the bottom and you're pushing up them and you swear you've been pushing for miles 
at like a 20% grade. So there's no, po- I mean, you, you should be in the clouds as much as you've been pushing your bike. And we came around a bend and the trail continued to go up at an even steeper pitch. And anybody who's ridden bikes knows that feeling. But after four days of, of turning yourself inside out, I was at a breaking point and I lost it. I just started screaming and throwing four letter words directly at the trail. And Kinzer's right behind me and he, you know, he, He's trying to be Kinzer and, and make me feel better. And I think he said some encouraging BS to me. And <laughs> and I just let him have it. I just said, shut the up, Kinzer. Can I can I cuss on you? Yeah. <laughs> I said, shut the fuck up, Kinzer. <laughs> and and just kept pushing. And um and we finally got to the top of that that climb and were able to get back on the bike and, and maybe twenty yards down the trail, uh, there's a box turtle on the trail. So we go around the turtle. And um, and this is when I found out that that Kinzer was also suffering a bit, and his mind was starting to go. Because he goes, "Do you ever wonder how he got here?" <laughs> <laughs> and I know how to respond to that. All I could say was, "I guess he walked, man." <laughs> I guess you could say that was a low point in the in the ride for me. <laughs> no, I mean. I definitely, I definitely had some breaking points too. Um, I mean, it's just a, it's a hell of a ride. It's a hell of a route. And, you know, Pinhoti is a great trail, but, uh, P zero, definitely not my favorite trail in the world. Heavily overgrown flat, but not flat somehow. Um, in some parts of it beaten to shit by horses. So the flat parts don't feel like flats because you're bouncing through what you know, a horse has left behind. So, and then you try to climb a very loose old roadbed that is just very hard. So that was, I think probably 70 miles into a day. And I was in my easiest gear, I think for the first time, cause I'm actually running a double. And, um, I think I was in the easiest gear for the first time. And I just, I lost it. I was screaming just like Donald, uh, a couple four-letter choice words, and almost stopped pedaling. Uh, but that's another part of this route. It's just it's it's not only physically demanding; it's also mentally demanding. And you break and you and you put yourself back together and you keep going. So, what was it like when you guys finished? How did you guys feel? What'd you do? Did was there a, you know a paper tape ticker parade or you know were there lots of fans out cheering you on i'll talk briefly about the the end of the route and then i'll talk about what our plan was and what the execution was um for us so the the last 10 miles or so of the the route you drop off the ridge and you get to pavement and you're super excited to see pavement at this point because you know that it's the end there's no more there's no more trail you're done you've just got to get to the border which is 10 miles away, but you can smell the barn. So you start to sprint and you don't have anything in, in your legs. So you don't sprint. You start like a tempo ride, except again, your gas tank's empty. So you're just, you're just turning the cranks over. Like, why is this taking so long? And you finally get down the road that the trail lets you out onto to Georgia 20, which is a, a two lane highway, 55 mile an hour, no shoulder, heavily trafficked by logging trucks. And you've got about four miles to go on that before you finally get to the border. It's It was murder. We had a headwind. It was 90 degrees. We made it there. Never been so happy to see Alabama in my life. <laughs> there's, no, there's, a, there's a gas station there, but other than that, there's nothing else. I think you can play some electronic 
casino games in the gas station. It's one of those guys. But there's nothing else to do there. You take a picture of the, the state line sign and you move on. And our plan, if you look at the map, the road kind of winds down and, and you can actually connect it maybe 30, 35 miles down to the Chief Ladiga Trail and get to the Chief Ladiga Campground, which then, since you're on the Ladiga Trail, you could take to the Silver Comet, which brings you back basically into Atlanta. So we had this idea that since that's all rail grade and flat and easy, that if we were feeling up for it, we just, you know, go camp that night and uh, and just ease our way back into Atlanta the next day. And um, after four miles on that road, and knowing that there was another twenty miles to go of that road before we got to the next turn to get to the campground, I was hosed, and I lost any sort of mental fortitude. I didn't want to deal with that, and I didn't want to risk my life riding on a road with logging trucks. So we sat there and and we're trying to get some fluids into us. And I, I had a little gem of wisdom and I said, man, we got to find an old timer with an old truck and he'll, he'll haul us into town, you know? So we'll just start, start casing people as they come in. And we, we hit an old guy with an old truck and he'll, he'll take us into town. And a bunch of new trucks came through. Kinzer was actually about to go ask the the beer delivery guy who was driving a little Ford transit van. <laughs> At the time, the Budweiser looked really, really nice. <laughs> but Eventually, uh, two fellas who were probably in their early 30s but looked like they might be in their late 50s pulled up <laughs> in an old Chevy. And um, Kinzer looks at me and goes, I'm going to ask him. <laughs> and he walks over there and, and he's like, hey, are you guys headed to whatever the next town was? And as they're getting out of the truck and the passenger belches and, and lets out a yip. And then he goes inside. And the driver gets out, beer in hand, slams the beer, throws it in the trash can, and all I can make out of what he said was, well, I was just in jail last week, but blah, 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 blah. Sure, why not? <laughs> so we go around the back of the truck, which doesn't have a tailgate. We throw our bikes in, <laughs> hop in the tailgate, or hop in the bed ourselves because it's a, a regular cab. And uh, the passenger guy comes back out with a 12-pack of beer, hops in, and, and we head on down the road. And I'm just so happy to not have to work to move at this point. I'm also sitting against the, the glass, so I'm facing out back of the of the truck. So I can't see what's going on inside the cab. I can just see the miles melting away and the wind in my hair, and it's just <laughs> glorious. And the glory's interrupted a couple minutes later when I hear a bang to, to my left and look over, and there's a Bud Light bottle skittering off a, a road sign. And I'm like, that's weird. So I look at Kinzer and I give him this kind of expression like, did that just come from our truck? And, and Kinzer looks at me and goes, dude, that's his fourth beer. <laughs> We're barely three miles down this road and it's a 55 mile an hour road. So this guy's got to be just hammering these things. I'm like, well, shit. <laughs> so we get to the next station where he's letting his friend out. And uh, he's like, oh, this is it, guys. And so Kinzer starts getting down and he's going to get the bikes. And I'm just like... Again, I'm so hosed. I'm actually like, can't we just ask him to take us further? <laughs> like, that's the level of exhaustion I'm at at this point. That's when I knew Donald had cracked again. <laughs> so we get out and we're at this, uh, the Weiss Lake Marina is, is the name of this place. And it's right on the edge of, of Weiss Lake, which is this big lake um, in northeastern Alabama. And we get the bikes down and we go inside and, and um, I grab some more water and some more food and come back out and Kinzer's gearing up to, to hitchhike some more and I'm done. And, 
And he says something like, so I guess we just have to ask everybody now. And I thought what he meant was get our phones out and start asking people for rides. Like, who's going to come get us? And so I was like, yeah, yeah, give me your phone because mine wasn't working. Give me your phone and I'll call Jesse, my wife, and she'll come get us. And Kendra's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we do that, and she's like, it's about two and a half hours drive to get to where we were from our house. So um, I'm like, well, we're just going to sit here on, on the front of this gas station on this broken bench for the next two hours. Kendra goes inside, and, and uh, he buys a six-pack, which is half of a 12-pack, if you can do math. But in Alabama, it actually literally is half of a 12-pack. They take a 12-pack and a utility knife, and they cut the box in half, and you buy six loose beers in a half of a cardboard box. So he comes out with some beer and, and everybody that comes in and out of this gas station is either pulling in with beer in their hand or leaving with beer in their hand. Several people, I mean, a, a couple pulls up in an old beat up Oldsmobile and they've got three bush cans on their dashboard. You know? So clearly DUI is not something the cops are concerned about uh, in Alabama. Neither is um, having shoes or shirts on when you go into a uh, establishment. So we, we were inundated with Alabama culture, as it, as it were, um, for the two hours we were sitting there waiting on, waiting on the ride. I would say it was probably the best way to finish up um, doing a 100-mile road ride back home just, uh, I think, cracked Donald. And, and I was still trying to go for it just for the, for the badassery, I guess. But then once he made that phone call, I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay into this. We're going to have a sweet old custom six-pack and uh, just kind of call this one done. <laughs> so I know I saw you guys after you, soon after you finished the route a couple weeks ago, and you're both looking pretty shelled. And I asked you this question then, so I'm kind of curious to see if the answer will be the same now as it was, but would you do this again? I think I told you that I would only do it if somebody was paying me large amounts of money, and I still stand by that. <laughs> For me, the first two times I had to bail on this ride, the first one when when I forced Kinzer to stop because it looked like somebody had taken a baseball bat to his knee because uh, he was riding with his saddle too high, I knew I was coming back immediately. Like I felt good on that ride, and I knew I was coming back to, to try it again. And so I signed up for the race in August, and... In between April and August, I don't think I rode my bike five times. And I just, I was super cocky. I was like, I've got this. And I got my ass handed to me, literally on my chamois. I, uh, I got the Dalton and I took it off to take a shower and skin came with it. So I, that's why I actually bailed on the race last year. And even though, as I was standing, rather, as I was standing in the shower in Dalton, letting the salt run down my back and over my open wounds, um, <laughs> biting my fist so the other guys in the hotel room wouldn't know I was crying. I knew I was coming back. And uh, I knew that I'd, I had 80 miles left to go and I was going to finish this stupid thing. And so, uh, you know, Kinzer mentioned it earlier, I came back to the shop probably the next day and was like, we're doing this, man. And when I finally got to the Alabama border, I have no intention of ever doing this ride again. There's parts of it that are amazing, and I would gladly go do a day ride or an overnighter or something like that, but I have no intention whatsoever of going to the South Carolina border and having somebody pick me up from the Alabama border ever again. <laughs> awesome, guys. Well, I really want to thank you for coming here and sharing your Trans-North Georgia experiences with us. So I hope our listeners will uh, enjoy hearing about it. So... That's it for the Single Tracks podcast this week. If you like it, please be sure to tell us via iTunes. We'll talk to you next time. Peace.